You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Mauricio Salgado. Mauricio is a director, an actor, a teacher, and an activist. He's someone I find very inspiring in his drive and the size of his ideas. He was an actor at Juilliard. Uh, he graduated right before I started there. But we got to know each other a few years later when I became involved with several outreach groups which he helped to start. We mentioned ArtReach, which is a student outreach group at Juilliard, which he and his now wife and other friends started after 9-11. And we also reference ASTEP, Artists Striving to End Poverty, which he worked with for many years, building arts camps for underprivileged children around the world. You can check out their work at astep.org, and you can see what Mauricio's up to at mauriciotsalgado.com. I've wanted to have him on the podcast for a very long time, and it was a great way to start the new year. We got to have this conversation on New Year's Day. I hope you enjoy the 104th episode of The Compass. The question that I always start with is what do you do to try to keep from going to the dark side mm. as an artist? Yeah, beautiful. And what a great question to ask on January 1st. I know. I'm excited that we're recording today. Right. I, I don't know what you do on the 1st, but I typically try to hide away with Cindy and reflect on these questions, especially in light of what I'd learned in the past year. So... It's a gift to be here today, processing that with you without any like good solid answers just yet. But maybe in the by the end of the hour, yeah, we'll have a good sense. Of, <laughs> Thank you for giving me your time on this day. Oh, it's awesome. Um, the dark side. Three words come to mind. The first one is apathy. That feeling of it's not my business. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, out of sight, out of mind kind of mentality. Um, the second one is abuse of power. Mm. When I find myself um, trying to control a situation in such a way that I um, remove or take away other people's agency. Mm. And the third one is self-righteousness when I think that I've got the answers or that I'm above something or that I would never do that. 
all, and all of these three, right, were not not in that kind of succinct a way, but were solidified for me as a kid. My parents, I mean, there's so many things. One of the things <laughs> that they are that I grew up with um, is that they're social workers, right. and they run a community center down in South Florida that focuses primarily on the migrant farm working community, the day laborers, which are predominantly from Central and South America, as well as the Caribbean, um, and also undocumented. So I grew up in a space where there were people dealing with all kinds of things, and my parents uh, wouldn't hide that from me. My mother would bring the challenges and the difficulties of those stories home to the dinner table. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for as much as they cared, they also struggled because they didn't want to care. It took a lot out of them. Um, and yet, I would say um, the story that rings the most true, that that story of Exodus and the call to, to remain uh, to have a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, that sometimes we as people, uh, we're constantly battling with having a stony heart instead of staying open and soft and porous. And that's where my, that's my parents did all the time. From For as much as my mother might be apathetic in a moment, if something came up, if she saw someone on the street, she would stop for two hours. I remember being in a parking lot at the Winn-Dixie, with all the groceries in the trunk and uh, there was a woman outside with a little kid in a shopping cart and I said mom let's give her a dollar and my mom was tired she'd just gotten home from work clearly like I sensed a frustration um, because she just she was about to the car the ignition uh, the key was in the ignition the car was on and she turned off the ignition she looked at those people she turned off the ignition and she stepped outside of the car left me in the car uh and was in conversation with them for what could have been 30 minutes, but might have felt, it felt to me like two hours, you know? And by the time she came back, it was so much more than a dollar. And that's my mother not giving in to apathy, you know? Um, when it comes to self-righteousness, um, my mother was constantly checking both my dad and I uh, about our, you know, chauvinistic entitlement. Hmm. Uh, Colombian culture, at least the way my parents describe it, is rife with chauvinism. And my mother was constantly like asking me, "What's that about? Why are you doing that? What are you What are you doing with that? Why are you objectifying?" Because she was watching you learn it somehow. Correct. And she would, oh boy, would she call my father out on it left and right. And mind you, my father doesn't read that way on the surface. My father is an example to me of what it means to be a man. Uh, committed to equality and yet there were things he was doing that had my mother not brought them up I wouldn't have recognized them so that as my mother once said to me you're you know and this might sound harsh but I get what it's about you're a man before you're my son she said to me once Mm -hmm. Um, so to say you're capable of anything you might think you're above abuse because I as your mother taught you not to be abusive but you come from a long line of people that were abusive sexually mm-hmm. and physically. So you're not above anything. You're, you're totally capable of all of it. Um, and then abuse of power, gosh, um, having run uh, programs for ASTEP, um, 
having partnered and run, you know, just run different kinds of things. I see it and I've seen it in myself, the desire to like get to the end goal and see people get in the way or uh, other things get in the way and wanting to, to throw that out the window and be like, well, we need to let that person go. We need to move on. We need to this or that quickly because um, they're ultimately a means to my end. Mm-hmm. And that to me is an abuse of power. Can be, can be. So all of these three things are true to me. They're true to what I struggle with every day. I walk with them every day. Uh, and I'm also suspicious of them in myself. And I'm trying to stay with a heart of flesh, you know, instead of yeah. that stony heart that leads to these things. So if you are having a day where you're feeling like maybe you're falling into one of those things. Yeah. What are the things that you reach for to try to pull yourself back? Yeah. Or what are the tools that have helped you? Totally. Um, I process openly with Cindy, with my beloved Cindy. Yeah. And she does a great job of checking me. So, uh, you know, in general, I would say I try to process where I'm at openly. You don't keep it to yourself. No. With the folks that are around me. Um, I... I dedicate a bit of time every day to my body, to my imagination, um, and to my breath. And those three help remind me um, of, of my humanity. You know, my body, um, if, even if it's 20 minutes, like before I came here to be with you, I took 20 minutes, I laid down a yoga mat, I put on a good song, and I just moved for 20 minutes. I'm fortunate that I've been around enough movers that I have a plethora <laughs> of activities to yeah. like to to have fun with so it doesn't get stagnant or boring. Um, I take uh, 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes just to breathe, to sit silently and breathe. And that reminds me of how um, fragile my body is. Um, and then my imagination you know, I, I think what makes, I've heard this a bunch and I appreciate the idea that what makes human beings unique is our ability to imagine uh, and create meaning. That we organize ourselves around meaning, different meanings and beliefs. And so I'm constantly trying to deepen and expand and shake up my imagination with questions, with books, with articles, with stories that friends tell me how can i take up take what i think is true and shake it up a little bit uh, and expand my perspective on what i believe what i dream about that's wonderful yeah <laughs> how do you do it what where are you today i mean you've sat with a hundred people today. you went to yoga today yeah 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 i did go to yoga today you know, I'm always I'm always trying to figure out what the like sitting sitting with just being enough. Mm. I think is something that I'm trying to do more and more. Mm. And just the sitting and breathing or just moving with your body and being grateful that I can do that. Mm. That's been really important for me lately. Mm. Cuz it's really easy to get I'm sure we'll talk about all of this, but it's really easy to get wrapped up in um what is ambition mm. and what is that a good thing or a bad thing because mm. our society says it's a good thing but Mm-mm. when i'm sitting on my yoga mat i'm like oh this could this is a good life if i could just maintain this right 
that's a good thing. Right. That that's <laughs> Maybe enough. This is my ambition. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, what is enough? Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah, what's enough? <laughs> what's enough for you today? What? I mean, yoga this morning was enough. Tea right now is enough. Tea what is else enough. is enough? Yeah, just having Frankie and Frankie and I talk about all the time about mm. how lucky we are mm. to have each other. You know. Yeah. And there might be some things, career things, we don't have. You know, that we know people who do have them and they don't have anyone to share them with. I still have the ambition. Yeah. What is it? <laughs> yeah. What is, what is that? I mean, what Martha Graham talks about it, right? That blessed unrest, yeah. that dissatisfaction. And I'm, I am interested in like, where does that, where does that sit within us? Is that, um, an instinct that we carry? Mm-hmm. Um, is that, is that a part of what it is to survive? because our brains have the capacities that they have that we're seeking more. I wonder, or I wonder how much that's just how we're acculturated. Yeah. It's a learned, Mm. it's a learned thing. Mm. Since your parents were involved so young, you watched them as social workers and community organizers. Right. It's obviously influenced you so much. And I Mm. I know that you, you created art reach at Juilliard and, ways for people to teach and do outreach work and yeah. moved on to a step was that something that you always saw yourself doing or did you think oh, i'm gonna go to acting school oh boy i'm gonna leave all that behind oh my gosh <laughs> i thought i was gonna get married like that's all i wanted <laughs> was to get married lucky me that happened um and then i grew up and i realized that's not all i wanted my parents were one of the things that they do um and have done for 40 plus years uh is provide workshops in um marriage uh, what it means to be a married couple, what it means to be a parent. Mm-hmm. They actually started doing this um, in New Jersey after they first got married. They started a youth group at their church because they were struggling uh-huh. with what it meant to be married and how to do the thing. And so they gathered friends and were like, let's sit down together and talk about how, do, <laughs> how does this work? How do we make this thing work? And they've been doing that for 40 plus years. That's awesome. And then when they became a parent, that they, they used the same technique. They just gathered people together and was like, how do we do this thing called parenting? But because of the demographic they were working with, primarily farm workers, um, a lot of which recently immigrated to the United States, hadn't grown up with our educational model so they weren't used to workshops and the way we run them here, right, where you get handouts and you sit and you look at a, right. uh, a board or a screen and you hear a lecture and then there's a discussion. Uh, these are people who are used to telling stories, who are used to role play, who when they gather, they gather to tell and perform stories and roast one another um, or like tell their biblical stories, whatever it may be. So that's how my parents led these workshops. It would begin with uh, my mother walking in, pulling me, being like, oh my <laughs> God, this kid, I have to, I just got home from work and I'm so tired and so on and so forth. And I'd be like, mommy, mommy, but I want food, I'm hungry. And then my father would come in and also be like, I'm exhausted from work. Miha, where's my food? He would say to my, my mom. <laughs> and my mom would be like, are you kidding me? I just got home from work too. And I picked up the kid. Why do you expect me? And they would get in it. And of course, the audience would be cracking up because they'd see <laughs> themselves in the dynamic. Um, and at some point, as, as like it got really intense, and I would start crying. And my parents would turn and yell at me. They would freeze it. And my mother would would turn to the audience and say, women, 
what do we do about this? What have you done in the, how do you deal with this circumstance? And the women would laugh and they would then share, oh, I do this or that, so and so forth. And then my father would say, men, how do we deal with this? And of course, they'd be quiet and the women would laugh again <laughs> until finally one or two men would, you know, kind of pipe up a little bit. And then finally, my mother would turn to me and say, and mijo, and how does it feel for you, mijo, to have your parents arguing like this? How do you feel? And immediately there would be a gasp in the room uh, because the parents would be like, what? A kid having an opinion? Like, <laughs> since when do we pay attention to how our kids feel? Right. They just have to suffer <laughs> through <laughs> our troubles because... Well, especially when it's a, a survival situation. Oh, boy, right, when you're dealing with you're such extreme financial basic. circumstances. Yeah, why, why pay attention? Like, I'm just helping you, like, grow up. Like, I'm feeding you, taking you to school, doing the basics. But my mother would create the room for that. And, you know, sometimes she'd coach me and be like, okay, Mauricio, before it's actually, this is what you're going to say, right? And then she would open the floor to me and I would just go <laughs> and I'd embarrass them. The yeah, totally. And I knew it, right? And those people would laugh and I'd just keep going. And half the time I didn't know what I was saying. Um, that's where I fell in love with the theater. <laughs> Uh, and little did I know, right, that I was practicing an age-old tradition um, that the church has implemented in missionary work, that Augusto Boal turned into mm -hmm. a particular practice within his Theater of the Oppressed uh, pedagogy, um, that we see over and over again, right, this kind of role-playing of sociodrama. Um, and it was, it was doing that. It was in the same vein as I described earlier, coming up in a culture where when family got together, you'd listen to songs and roast and perform for one another and make jokes. And I was the kid who did that. Uh, so in fact, I was never interested in becoming like a professional actor. I didn't know what that was. Um, I wanted to get married. <laughs> I thought I knew how to, I know how to do this. Yeah, I've gone to enough marriage seminars and oh. enough parenting seminars that I know how to do this thing. And it wasn't until my high school sweetheart, uh, Stephanie, who was like, I'm not going to stick around with a with a guy who doesn't have any ambition, who doesn't want to make something of himself. Um, you need to you need to want to do something. So I was like, all right, where should I apply for college? And my high school drama teacher was like, you should apply for Juilliard, NYU, and SMU. And then I got in. <laughs> went to Juilliard. It was the weirdest thing, but it it makes sense why I ended up starting. Art reach in that nonprofit because even when I got to Juilliard and all my classmates and the people around me were like excited about their careers and so on and so forth, I was pretty open. I was like, I don't know what this means. I love to perform. Um, I love being in front of a group of people, knowing that the story is making a, like a, an actual impact and being in that dialogue with an audience. Um, and then September 11th happened. Okay. September 11th was my second day of school. Oh my god! And immediately I was like, I should quit like there's a lot of work that needs to be done one of my classmates nick manel spent um 72 hours downtown picking up the rubble did a full shift um and i thought about dropping out and it was cindy you know at the time she was in the dance program she said um stick with it you might have something to learn here that would serve what your ultimate plan is what your ultimate calling is and so we immediately started going how do we use this what are we learning here and how do we use it to, to bridge the divide that was so apparent to us in the racism mm -hmm. that was rampant 
uh, throughout New York City after 9-11, you know, for as many stories as there may be about how New York City came together after 9-11, there was so much Islamophobia and hate crime against Muslims, and we were like, we got to do something to bridge that divide. And you had just moved there. Correct. I was all of 18 years old figuring out what it means to be in New York City when all that happened, yeah. Well, I've talked to um, a lot of our friends and colleagues Mm. on this podcast who you've influenced so Mm. much. Mm. Um, And part of it is because you are such a great teacher and you're Mm. such a great organizer. And you've created a framework with ArtReach and ASTEP that allows artists to have that avenue to give back, even if they they haven't found something on their own Mm -hmm. as a way to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm honored, you know, uh, and I... I've had had so many people on here mention your name. I don't know if you've gotten to them yet, but... Yeah, a little bit. I am. um, (laughs) I'm honored because, quite frankly... uh, they have all influenced me, right? The work yeah. wouldn't be what it is yeah. if we hadn't gone on that journey together. I mean, the first thing that Cindy and I did uh, back when was write up what we had, you know, some folks, some of our friends had endearingly termed our manifesto. You know, we were <laughs> like, what is this thing? We have to figure out how to use art um, to address political and social injustices and difference. And little, right again, little did we know, there's such a long history of that already. Right. It's not like it hasn't been no, done of before, course. but it can also, f- depending on how you do it, it can feel pointless. Correct. It's like, oh, I, I just did this protest performance for people who all agree with me. That's right. And for what? And for, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And also, it wasn't a part of the curriculum at Juilliard. Yeah. Like, talk about an institution not that is that not way. oriented towards that conversation. And that's changed a lot now, but... Correct. Um, when, not when you were there. Fortunately, thankfully, that, that has changed. I mean, so, you know, we wrote up this manifesto, you know, this kind of naive, uh, idealistic, and beautiful manifesto of, like, we need to figure out how to bridge this divide. And we shared it with a bunch of people because we were like, we don't know how to do this thing. I have no idea. And it was that gathering, those 11 of us that started back when. That's where it all came from. I mean, I think the skill that I have is... Um, an ability to sit in a room with somebody and listen Mm -hmm. and then very gently help them realize uh, that they too want to make a difference in the world. (laughs) Some of my friends would say I manipulate them into seeing that, (laughs) but I think everybody in some way or another um, is interested in helping, helping their grandma, helping their loved one, helping a neighbor, helping a stranger, whatever it may be. Um, but in a culture where we maximize, where we value uh, our own needs because it's hard <laughs> um, to meet those needs, it becomes really hard to want to help others. Yeah. And so my... And we can be so isolated. Correct. And my hope is how to help them see you don't have to be that isolated. It's not that hard. It's not that hard to, to find a little bit of time to make room for somebody else. Well, we're going to jump around a lot because yeah. you've, you've done so many different things. Cool. And you were at ASTEP for a long time. Mm. You left. You went to Divinity School. I did. And now you're in grad school for directing <laughs> I at know. Brown. I know. Oh, How's, boy. How, is, this is your last semester coming up? Yeah. Okay. Um, tell me a little bit about 
where you are right now and why you decided to go back to school for directing. Yeah, awesome. What, what your goals are. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. Um, an opportunity to reflect. Maybe I can get clearer myself <laughs> as to why I did all this stuff. You know, um, there's a metaphor um, that I think describes why I went back to, why I went to school in the first place. Um, the metaphor goes like this, that change agents um, exist on a riverbank. And there are change agents at different points of that riverbank. Some are downstream, some are upstream. And the downstream change, change agents are helping people come out of the, the stream, right? People who have fallen in, um, things that are drowning, dying. They pull those people up. I would say ASTEP is one of those downstream organizations that is in response to crises right. and is doing direct services like all the organizations ASTEP partners with in domestically as well as internationally. These are all people who are trying to uh, alleviate a, an immediate crisis and some of which are thinking into the long term, but mostly it's direct services. And, and over the years, working with so many young people in India and South Africa and the DR in Peru and across the United States, um, I found myself over and over again meeting folks who would say, thank you for this, and now I need you to go do more. I need you to go figure out how to prevent this from happening in the first place. Because this is really nice, right? Yeah. I appreciate that you're here with us for six months or committed to a long-term collaboration, but our ki kids keep ending up in these situations. Right. How do we prevent that? And that's where the change agents upstream are. They're trying to figure out why are people falling into the river in the first place? And so I went back to school to understand that, to understand what are the systems that perpetuate the oppression that exists around the world? And what are the fundamental philosophies behind those systems? I went to the seminary because I was interested in being in conversation with a system that has perpetuated oppression mm. um, over the ages especially this seminary because it's a seminary that is deeply interrogating its own history as an oppressive structure. Because were you at Columbia? I was at Union Theological oh. Seminary. Um, it's in New York, it's an ecumenical space, so to say that they're not affiliated with a denomination. There are folks there who do not uh, um, practice a particular faith um, or a, a, a faith that um, centers a god. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a great, you know, cross-section. Uh, it's also uh, known for being the birthplace of a lot of radical theologies. Um, some of the key thinkers in black liberation theology went through that school. Um um, Reinhold Niebuhr, who is known as like a deep um, white American, kind of at the center of j the conversation around justice in the church and how mm -hmm. the church fails at justice over the course of the 20th century. Um, he taught at that school. It's just such a great school for that conversation. Right. So I went there to steep myself in, in that. As, and also because I'm a person of faith, because I do believe in God. Uh, I come from a tradition that um, does that and has... Uh, recognize its power um, as a just um, 
way of, of building uh, social framework and ways of living together. Um, and then in the seminary, while I was there learning a lot about systemic oppression and how that's ingrained in me, um, everything that, that we hit that fall, right, where uh, Tamir Rice uh, was, had been killed and the police officer that killed him was not indicted. Mm -hmm. And the police officer that killed Eric Garner was not indicted. Um, and because it's the union is a radical space that invites radical people, radically young people who are engaged in protest and in resistance movements. I mean, we had students down at uh, in Ferguson um, for a good part of that time. When everything did, went down with Eric Garner, we got engaged, and all of my organizing ability went into that and in organizing protests and a hub for locals to learn how to be engaged in the work and organized in the streets. Uh, and that really did a lot for my class at Union as well as for that school. It, it really shook up the way we were thinking about our studies and our work. Um, and it was in that time that I went to visit Melissa Kievman and Brian Murtis, who uh, are the directors of the directing program at Brown, old friends, right? Yeah. Uh, they directed you, Brian directed you in a play at... They did my final play at That's Georgia right, that's right. He directed me in a play there my second year, mm -hmm. and I was involved in a lot of their work at Lake Lucille. Um, and they said, why don't you bring your questions um, about uh, systems and uh, injustice to this place? Bring your, your questions around theology and the divine and see how they reckon with what it means to be in a conservatory. Um, because uh, not a lot of that was happening at the time. Conservatories are just, as we noted earlier, from my experience, at least Juilliard was not a space that was interested in that. Uh, so uh, I went there I went there for that, and among other things, right? So I, I wasn't particularly, I didn't see myself as a director until Melissa looked me square in the eyes, and she's like, you're a director. You can be a director. <laughs> I was like, what? And most of my friends, especially at ASTEP, who I said, hey, so I'm shifting from the seminary, which they understood, <laughs> to uh, go to Brown to pursue an MFA in directing. They're like, how does that make any sense? <laughs> and it really was Michelle Alexander who wrote uh, The New Jim Crow, okay. um, a book that is considered part of the centerpiece of this current civil rights movement. Um, she came and she spoke at Union, and she said to us, um, this new civil rights movement requires that we break down the silos of specialization. Hmm. That what, the, what happened at the end of the last civil rights movement was there was all this uh, isolating, I'm an expert at this, you're an expert at that, and so on and so forth. And then what happens is we start binding, we start limiting our imaginative ability, our moral imaginary, to see what is possible. And so she was putting on us, theologians, activists at Union, and say, you need to get out of the pulpit and go spend time in other spaces. You need to enter into conversation mm -hmm. with politicians and educators and uh people who fix cars and your garbage folk and anybody you just you need to, to stay in your lane precisely get out of your lane this movement requires us requires some new uh imaginative thinking about how do we how do we shake this thing up and that's where i was like oh i guess it could make sense for me to break away from my lane to go back into a conservatory for directing <laughs> 
Uh, and that's what it's been. It's been really great for that because uh, being being in training as a director has challenged me a lot in the way I think um, as an organizer, as an activist, as a facilitator, as a theologian. And I think I've brought a lot of that too to that program and to the folks, the students and the faculty in that program. I mean, that's really a gift that they kind of invited you in with all of your, I don't want to call it baggage because oh, that's boy. not what I mean. Oh, <laughs> but like yeah. all the things you're wrestling with, and yeah. they weren't like, no, you don't, they didn't say you have to come here and do this our way. Yeah. They're like, come in here with all your messy, big questions. Totally, totally. With. Although, you know, I think in retrospect, if you were to ask some of the faculty, did you know Mauricio was going to come in and do this? Brian and Melissa <laughs> didn't maybe tell them. They would. Actually, I, I wrote a letter to Brian and Melissa ahead of time. I was like, so I want to be upfront with the faculty and I want to let them know that I think Brown, like all other institutions, are systemically racist and sexist and misogynist. And I see it already in the curriculum and the structure of the program. And I'm coming to challenge it. <laughs> and Brian, Brian was like, slow down. <laughs> like, a, I hear you. But B, you don't know us. Yes. And this is a part of that self-righteousness bit. That's interesting. You know, that self-righteousness of like, I have the answers. I know. I actually do know. Right. Um, that doesn't allow uh, for change or doesn't allow that human beings are complicated. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, we live in uh, a society that is that has been historically oppressive. And in all institutions are implicated in that, especially the academy. Um, so just by them being that, an academy, they are implicated, and yet human beings are uh, beautifully complicated. And as I said earlier, we strive for something better than, I believe that. Um, so we're still messing with things. So, I, so Brian was right. He was like, show up, get to know us first. Wait, wait on it. <laughs> Is that hard for you to slow down? No. It's, a, <laughs> um, it's not my my natural tendency. Um, but when someone help reminds me that it's good to slow down, I go there. <laughs> I love it. I love to slow down. In fact, one of the things I learned, and this goes to how I wrestle with the dark side. Um, when I, in 2007, I took a class at Fordham university and I learned about the Sabbath, um, as a practice, not just as a spiritual religious practice, but also as a a daily practical as a, rest. as a as a what did what does it mean to rest and so i started at that time the teacher asked us you know consider experimenting with it so i took a day where i was like all right i'm not going to do anything i'm not going to turn anything on um for 24 hours i'm not i also you know chose to fast although that's not a prerequisite of the sabbath um and that day was torture I mean, I was up at like seven in the morning and every 20 minutes I was looking at my <laughs> clock. I was like, what, how is this day going so slowly? Like <laughs> this needs to move so much quicker. And now, nowadays the Sabbath is the closest I've come to understanding rest. Mm. Abraham Heschel, who is a prolific and prophetic, uh, rabbi passed away, um, had, wrote a book about the sabbath and he has a quote i want to share about it yeah, because please. it's fundamental to me and the folks i've shared it with have also recognized its uh, power and its potency he says to set apart one day a week for freedom a day on which we would not use the instruments 
which have been so easily turned into weapons of destruction. A day for being with ourselves, a day of detachment from the vulgar, of independence of external obligations, a day on which we stop worshiping the idols of technical civilization, a day on which we use no money, a day of armistice in the economic struggle with our fellow humans and the forces of nature. Is there any institution that holds out a greater hope for humanity's progress than the Sabbath? That's beautiful. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's also really hard. <laughs> no, of course. <laughs> Yo, boy, to not look at my email, to wake up the next morning to like 100 emails in my inbox. And I think the day that I really uh, understood the potential of the Sabbath um, was the day that I was laying in bed, you know, uh, from my window I could see the, the passing train. Um, and I saw the train go by four times the hour. And I'd look and I'd see people on that train and imagine they're going on with their lives. And I'm not a part of that. I might as well be dead. And it's okay. And it's okay. And the world's going to go on. I'm, in the end, not that important. Mm. To me, that's that, that's that relativizing. That like, yeah, I'm not, zooming out. Yeah, right? The self-righteousness goes out the window. Because quite frankly, things are going to keep on going yeah. after I'm gone. So it's not... It's not that deep. It might be, it might feel real deep for me inside, right? All my yeah. daily struggles and gosh, I, I have a play I'm about to do and I have no idea what my design is going to be or, you know, um, how are we going to deal with this new tax plan? And, oh my God, there's so many refugees in the world. Um, but in the end, it's not, I'm, I'm not the one that's going to fix that. So instead of tearing myself apart, um, a little humility, right? I'm going to die and people are going to keep going. Uh, and hopefully, and that, and you're not the only one who's worried about this that's particular right. thing that's right. and that's working right. towards it. Right. Yeah, but that first line about taking a day for freedom. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it also just reminds you about like the power of um, saying no. Mm. Yeah. Too, because it's not just that the world's going on without you, but the fact that you're claiming your time. That's right. How do you do with that? your time. <laughs> yeah. How is that for you, the power of saying no? I mean, have you... I mean, I, I feel like I've gotten a lot better at it mm. or, or have let go of the feeling a little bit of that I'm missing out somehow if I don't mm. say yes to every single thing or every single participate in every single thing. Because mm -hmm. I really have come to value much more feeling rested mm. and knowing that I need time alone to right. be of any use to being around a bunch of people mm. like I, I need got that introvert side where like I need to recharge that's right by having time to myself right and that's a great point you make too right the difference in our personalities that introverts need some of that in a way that extroverts don't it's a lot harder for Cindy to take a Sabbath because yeah. she recharges with people right um I appreciate the time on my own. I'm, I'm also an extrovert, but I have introverted tendencies. And right, so, I want both. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, totally. So you have one semester left. Yeah. I know you've done, um, I forget what you called it. I know you did that big kind of sit-in at Brown where you guys like reevaluated the whole curriculum and stuff. Something like that. <laughs> I had uh, Shalia Latour on from Yale. Yeah. And she mentioned that she was really inspired by the stuff you guys were doing when yeah. you were starting to 
kind of make some demands at Yale of the program. Right. Um, but that was in your first year, right? That's right. That was that grace period. That was <laughs> That's when the grace period ended. <laughs> I was like, great, I'm here a couple right, months. I've gotten to know you, and now let's do something about it. <laughs> That's cool, cool. So, yes, you do, are do you human and like beautiful. Things have, um, that they were receptive and that there was has been change in the program since then that you think is productive? You know, I, I go back to when you said, you know, that I was, a, I, I recognized I was a part of it. So it wasn't me that, um, led that thing or that instigated. I really okay. believe I was a part of a group of people, something that had existed before my time there okay, that I used my platform, my power as a director, uh, because directors have the directing students have unique power at that school to organize space, mm. um, in a way that I don't think the actors feel empowered to do, um, might distinguish my role in that event a little bit. Um, but yes, all of that to say, Yes, there has been change, and the change has come about because everybody has engaged in some way. So it's not like the students demanded this thing, and then the faculty decided right. to do this other You're thing. Not against each other. No, it's it's although it's felt that way mm -hmm. uh, along the journey, and that's the difficulty of asking for change, right? There's going to be tension and there's going to feel moments of antagonism. I know certain faculty feels like I've antagonized them, that I showed up to that program to tear it down. Mm. Um, and I get why they would have that perspective because, I mean, right, I imagine they build something, it's 40 years going, right, that has had success, that, that has a following um, with a lot of care and love they built this thing. And here comes in somebody who's just walked in the door three months and is, you know, from their perspective, organizing people to critique it in a really strong way and say, actually, uh, you've got a lot to think about. Um, there might be some great things here, but there's a lot in which you're perpetuating the problems that exist in our industry um, and that exist, you know, across various industries. That's a hard thing to, to no, bring to somebody. So I get why they you know, why there's been tension. Uh, and yet today I am, I'm, I'm very proud of the commitment, the ongoing commitment um, that the entire community demonstrates. The students, the faculty, the administration. And I say that in that way because it's, you know, it's change requires commitment. I would say that's the most you can do is say I'm committing myself because who knows, right? What it actually takes to change systems. Like there are some obvious thing. We can change the, um, the demographic of our faculty. We can change the demographics of our administration and our student body. We can change our curriculum. We could change the way we deal with time, all of which we've done on some level, um, which is really exciting. And I think, demonstrating a way that a conservatory can make adjustments and Juilliard is paying attention, I mm -hmm. think, and NYU is paying attention and Yale and other schools are paying attention um, to one another as they're all doing these things. And yet at the same time, like you can put a policy in place today and tomorrow it means nothing. It's the ongoing commitment to showing up at the table and saying yes. there are problems. We need to figure out how to deal with them. I mean, we're seeing that not to take this in a completely different direction, but we're seeing that with the government this year. Correct. All these policies that were in place have just, the commitment's gone and they've just been ripped up. Yeah. Terrifying stuff. It's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Any anyone for you that rings particular in this moment? Oh, I don't know if I'm, I mean, all of these, in, all of these environmental things. Yeah, that's right. Just scary. That's right. And yet what, 
environmental organizations, some of which I'm a part of and trust, say, and everybody goes on saying, uh, a policy exists and a policy can create a lot of damage, but the policy will only retain its power if we give it its power, Mm -hmm. right? And so far that we continue to show up and demonstrate a commitment to not obey, to resist policies that we disagree with, and that we strategically organize folks on all levels of that system of power, um, we have a chance at disrupting these policies. I think that's one of the greatest lessons I learned at Brown uh, was this strategically organizing across systems that we need students faculty and administrators all involved that it's not going to be successful if just students try to organize or if just administrators try to organize. Um, And there is evidence of past movements, past major social movements and the efficacy of organizing across uh, space. And I think, you know, for anybody who's listening and is considering how do I strategically, you know, resist a job I'm at, a, a, a theater company I'm working with, uh, an institution, an academy I'm training at, uh, be mindful that if uh, you don't, that if there aren't people at certain levels, it might not be the right time for that institution to change. Mm. You might bring your questions and bring, your, bring those questions, but if you're concerned about maintaining that job and you can't find people to organize with across the spectrum, it's going to be a lot harder. Um, can't say it's impossible because anything is possible, but I don't think it's as effective right. a strategy to resist in that way. Uh, what are you excited about to work on in your last semester? Oh my gosh. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Uh, I'm and directing. How, how are you artistically like applying all, yeah, these, yeah, yeah. all these ideas? Yeah. Awesome. So I'm directing a play called An Acorn. Okay. It's a brand new play written by Caridad Svitch. Is this a Brown playwright? No, no. Caridad um, is a really well-known prolific. She's written like 53 plays oh and won a, a handful of Obies. And, um, Sorry, I don't know her work. Yeah, she's... Uh, and I came to her work because she was a student of Irene Fornes, Maria okay. Irene Fornes. And so... Um, Caridad sent me some new pieces she'd been working on. This is a play that has no, uh, no assigned, no designated roles. So it's kind of like a, it's a long epic poem. It's a beautiful poem. Um, it's, as she says it, it's one voice and it's a hundred voices all at the same time. And the way I imagine it, uh, I see taking the lids off of buildings, the roofs off of buildings, and hearing the cacophony of conversation happening in a cityscape the day after a catastrophe. Hmm. Imagine, right, the morning after a really shitty election or the morning after 9-11 or the morning after uh, Hurricane Sandy. What does it sound like to take the lid off of all these buildings and to hear these conversations happening across spaces? How does it reflect a kind of randomness, kind of random meaninglessness? Or how does it actually demonstrate synchronicity? And that's what this play has the potential to be, and I'm really excited about that. Um, It's also, you know, has the potential to be a horrible mess. (laughs) (laughs) My projects, I tend to leap into projects that can be that. Where the risk the of risk, failure yeah. is high. <laughs> yeah. And typically I fail. Um, but I'm excited to be working on this, this brand spanking new play. And the way I'm approaching it specifically that I have over the last year kind of gotten clearer about uh, is through a decolonial framework. Uh, so 
what do I mean by that? I mean um, that the effort to colonize, um, one way of thinking about it is an effort to map uh, in order to take advantage of resources, right? You're mapping a landscape in order to know how I can efficiently move X resources to another place in order to accumulate them. Right. So what is it? How have we colonized our characters or our rehearsal processes? What are the efficient, effective ways of making art that we're most used to? And how do we disrupt those? So, for example, um, when working on Mud last year, I took the play apart. We put the scenes out of order. We performed it every week, even though the actors weren't ready necessarily to perform it. And we performed it for very specific and small audiences in people's apartments. Um, you know, uh, we came down to visit Irene and performed it for her at the nursing home she's at. Um, so again, we disrupting the way we go about building a character or building a play. I wanted the actors to embrace um, Irene's uh, ass assertion that her characters are living. So if if living if they are living, then they're not logical, right? They're chaotic. They're organic. They're cyclical. Uh, so I can't build a linear character or a linear track journey with my character and say, oh, my character begins here and he ends there. Because I don't know a human being that begins here and ends there. Um, we, it, it changes day to day, <laughs> right? So how do we allow that mystery remains? How do we create opportunities so that we go, I actually don't know why that character is doing that. And I'm not concerned with trying to understand how that character is doing it, but I'm interested in meeting the intention. How... Does their intention in this moment lead to that next line or that next moment? And how does my, how can I enact an intention that gets me to the same place without trying to logically or rationalize, oh, it's because this psychology or that pain or that bit of suffering. Um, so I'm, that's, that's at the centerpiece of how I'm thinking about work, largely because that's what I'm interested systemically as well. That's what I've taken away from my four years of graduate study <laughs> is, um, is a commitment to decolonize, yeah. um, which practically is a commitment to be in solidarity with the poor. I can talk about decolonization all I want, as a lot of folks do in the academy, and find a way to use that word as a catchphrase to talk about a book they're writing, but unless... It is directly making an impact on people who are oppressed, then it's not decolonizing. Um, and then how do I bring that way of thinking into my own process, like my own thought process, my imagination, the way I create work, the way I uh, uh, ask a theater to embrace a project? For example, I'm doing a keynote address for a festival in a month, and I've asked them to... Um, to connect with the local tribe um, and see if I can bring someone from that tribe to uh, to speak, uh, to be a part of my keynote. I'm recentering who is at the center of the conversation. Um, what's, what's the subject of the festival? Oh, the, the festival is the American College Theater Festival. It's the Kennedy Center's oh, festival. Yeah. And this is their, their region one, which is the north, part of the large section of the northeast, northeast the tri-state area. Um, and so Larissa Fast-Torres and Ty Defoe, these beautiful artists, um, uh, they are putting out the call for anybody who's a theater maker to stop ignoring 
uh, and stop imagining that, not just stop ignoring, but then stop tokenizing, right? Uh, how do we recenter the way we think about who's in the room and uh, the agency that exists within those people that are in that room? So I'm thinking a lot about that. And to me, that's a decolonizing effort. Um, yeah. yeah. I love that you're applying that idea. You're kind of applying it to each ring. Like uh, it was like all the rings of a tree, like yeah, to things that you know, like what just little small things you do in your daily life yeah. or the rehearsal process. Yeah. Or, well, that's it. I mean, that I, giant idea apply to this situation. That's, um, Peter Brook talks about what asks the question, what is the actor's daily practice? Yeah. Uh, and he asks it as a critique uh, because he sees that musicians and dancers have to practice daily. But what do actors do? He's like, it doesn't seem like you do much. So you kind of get stagnant <laughs> and stale and you just, uh, you know, recreate stereotypes. What is our daily practice? And for me, that's what art is. It's a daily engagement with the people around um, it, with our imagination, um, with the stories that are happening all of the time, um, within our lens and within the lens of the people that are, we're passing by. Uh, so, so that's why it exists in all these realms. It's not just about what I'm doing on the stage or, uh, it's, it's who I am. I would say that's my art yeah. above all else. Can we talk a little bit about how your family um, takes in your choice to be an artist for your career? Yeah. I am so fortunate that my parents support it 100%. Really? Oh, man. From the get-go, I mean, I would say, in fact, they instigated it, right? Yeah, it sounds a little bit like yeah. that. Yeah, and... You know, it wasn't just about those sociodramas. It was also like at every holiday party, my mother would be like, do that impression, that thing that you do, do that. Can you make fun of your father right now in front of everybody and like be him? Um, so really I was encouraged. I was always encouraged to perform. Yeah. And then in Miami, the public school system while I was growing up wasn't so good. So... Um, my parents put me in magnet schools. Those were the schools where there was more funding. So the, the, there were less students in a classroom and there was specialized training. And my parents put me in the arts magnet. It's not like they forced me to go into the business magnet or the math magnet. They were like, you're, you're a good actor. But it was never like, and now I want you to turn that into a career. Right. And make money doing that right. thing. They, th that's not who <laughs> my like, folks this are. This is your fun. This is your that's fun right. thing you do. That's right. That's right. Well, and it's actually, it's even further than that. It's not just fun, but it also makes an impact. Again, because for them, the theater, we weren't theater goers. Like, and my parents, nowadays, they watch more TV. And boy, did we grow up watching soapies, you know, Spanish <laughs> soapies. But my mother avoided film and television most of the time because it was always so full of the same trauma that she saw day in and day out uh, in the abuse centers that she worked at as a counselor. So even then, it was never about like, be a movie star or be right. a... It was more about storytelling. It was about storytelling and the impact that storytelling has on a community and seeing that I have that. I mean, I think, you know, my parents... In their ideal world, I go down and run their community center. You know, my mother would say, "No, no. Our ideal world is that you do whatever you want to do, and that's beautiful." And yet, if I think like just financially, my parents would love <laughs> for that kind of stability for me. But they—they they right. just—they believe that um, 
I haven't had, I'm fortunate that I haven't had a hard time finding work. Um, that, you know, aside from my high school days where I worked at Chuck E. G's and McDonald's and Ruby Tuesdays, uh, since graduating Juilliard, it was a step and it was teaching in the public schools here in New York. It was all things that were relevant right. to the way I wanted to make my work, my art. Um, so my folks have, haven't had a reason to, uh, because they supported the art form and then financially they saw I was doing okay. They haven't had a reason to be like, you might want to consider doing something else. And I also need to back up and say, you know, Cindy, the fact that I have such a stable relationship, like that's where, that's what matters the most to them. I would say, again, as marriage counselors, that my marriage is a success. Um, and it also happens to be that Cindy is a very successful dancer (laughs) (laughs) that makes enough money to carry me through grad school. Do you know what I mean? How do you guys, I know she's doing great in her career, which is amazing. She's an incredible dancer. Yeah. Um, but how do you, I mean, you guys spend so much time apart. How yeah. do you guys deal with that? The first conversation Cindy and I had goes to show what kind of people we are. We just, like, we're 18 years old. We're on a train to an overnight party in Connecticut, <laughs> right, which you know is going to be full of drinking and <laughs> smoking and uh, dancing. And the first thing that we connect on is artistic integrity, that we both wanted to make sure that we uh, were committed to a life of artistic integrity. I don't know that we knew what that meant, (laughs) but but that was our priority. So to say that even though I am a person who aspired to be married, I knew when I got to Juilliard that the work would be the thing that would fuel a large chunk of the next decade of my life. And that was Cindy's rule. I mean, I actually proposed to Cindy a year after meeting, um, and she was like, no. (laughs) She's like, because I'm still in school, Uh. and uh, my career as a dancer matters more to me. I didn't come to Juilliard to stop dancing. Correct, and and I understood that, Mm -hmm. and that made sense. And so because we're ambitious people, um, we set off to do that and make that our priority and the work that she does is so inspiring like if she was doing mediocre work or or work and trust me we've had those conversations where she'd be like well i kind of got this offer what if i did this thing and i was like no (laughs) like (laughs) not interested in you doing that thing because she has had so much success doing amazing work so i'm excited you know she recently um was offered a contract uh to return for another season with kid pivot and be a part of their new creation. It's another potential three years oh on the road in a period in our lives where we're like maybe more ready to have a kid. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, you know, the first she came up to me kind of sad and kind of nervous. It's like, it's great. It's awesome. And yet what about us? And I was like, you got to do it. Like Crystal to me sets the bar for awesome theater making right now. And the fact that she wants to keep working with you, that she sees... Yeah something in you that has to be on stage and because you're such a beautiful artist how could i possibly say no to that i'm excited i can't wait <laughs> to to show up to a couple of rehearsals and see how they're working and be inspired and let that drive yet another you know bit of my own work i think um, that's one of the most amazing things about being in a relationship with another artist is when yeah. is when you really see them outside of your relationship right 
or you forget for a second that you're like, oh yeah, that's that's my wife. That's my that's right. You're just like blown away about whatever <laughs> moment they created. That's right. Artistically, like that's that's pretty special. Yeah, it is. It's awesome. And I also have a lot of conversations around relationships with you know artists uh, and the struggle, the comparison, right? I could very easily be like, gosh, Cindy's having such a hell of a career and I'm not. Um, and it's not just in relationships, it's amongst friends. I mean, I know what it was like at Juilliard for us to like, ooh, can't tell that I got that agent or can't tell that I just got that movie because there's all that competition. And I see it at Brown right now. No, it's tricky to resist that. Right, it is. Everybody goes down there. Totally, of course. For two seconds and you talk yourself out of it. Yeah, I mean, I had Oscar Isaac as a classmate. Like, yeah. <laughs> like talk Adam about, Driver. yeah, precisely. <laughs> Potential for like, both, oh my God, both why am I, both, right both, <laughs> how, am I, how are we not sitting here like, damn it, why didn't I have that career? And I would say it has to, again, it has to do with pushing up against that self-righteousness pushing up against um, that apathy and saying, you know what, um, I, this is about us. This isn't just about me. That Oscar is having a successful career is awesome because yeah. Oscar is a part of me. Yeah. Um, that you, Leah, are doing what you're doing is exciting to me. I don't need to do what you do. You do what you do, and that's beautiful that you get to do that and that others get to do that. Um, and that's hard. It's hard to come to that place and like allow that kind of, right. we're each doing our own thing and we're each, because ultimately there are oppressive structures that intentionally keep certain people from having the potential of doing those it's awesome true. things. I mean, it's, I feel like it's easier, at least for me in my marriage, because I, to me, I, we look at it as a team. Uh -huh. So it's like if one of us is excelling, that's right. it takes us both higher it benefits us both yeah the people one of us is meeting the other one's meeting that's right any anything that's good for one of us is good for the team but i'm sure it would be more difficult if um like let's say you were both doing the same thing or that's right we're both eligible for the same types that's of right. jobs or whatever it would be we were both dancers yeah hard yeah crystal is pretty um exclusive and I, you know, it's funny. I've told Cindy, I don't know how many times that if an opening happens, uh, she should put my hat in the ring <laughs> because I would love to Does work with Crystal. Uh, movers, uh, actor movers uh, sometimes? No. <laughs> Crystal is, knows who she wants to work with and she's right. <laughs> she, she picks well. And where do they, where do they work? When they're, they're based out of Vancouver, Canada. Yeah. Um, but so I totally get it, and I'm completely sympathetic to couples who deal with that comparison and that struggle, feeling like somebody's getting ahead, and it's not specifically because their, you know, their talent is more than mine, because you know how our field is. It's totally subjective, but sometimes it feels like it's all these other things. In the no, it feels personal. Totally. So I understand the struggle. Um, there's, that's, that's a dark side, right? That kind of loneliness. Yeah. That even with the person you feel closest to, your most beloved, um, there's a moment of feeling I'm less than. Mm -hmm. I'm not as good as I'm not as successful, whatever that may mean. And luckily enough, Cindy and I haven't, we haven't crossed that path yet. Like I said, I'm not above anything, right? It's completely <laughs> possible that Cindy someday will be like, damn. I wish I had Mauricio's career. <laughs> no, that will never happen. Uh, but whatever it may be. You never know. Yeah, you never know. 
do you guys just try to keep keep the communication up and see each other as often as you can? Oh boy, yeah, we learned that the hard way. You know, when we graduated Juilliard, uh, a step was just kicking off, and Cindy got a job um, working with Cirque du Soleil um, as the assistant to Mia Michaels, and she was also on the road with a couple things, and I was in a play, and we had enough stuff going that we weren't really seeing one another. And next thing you know, two years had gone by, and we'd seen one another, but We'd also fall in love with other people. We'd had moments of being deeply attracted to other individuals mm -hmm. and being able to check that before uh, we crossed any serious boundaries and having great conversation um, uh, and forgiveness and grace with one another about it. But uh, two years into our marriage, the summer of 2007, I just finished an A-step camp down in South Florida. Cindy was on tour with Barishnikov. She's in Chicago. I fly from Florida to Chicago the next day after my camp is over. I'm exhausted. She's got two days, two performances. We see each other, you know, a handful of times. I see the dance piece maybe half a time because I'm asleep. We kind of sort of make love because I'm asleep. We got, you know, we just have a lot of these like really sweet yeah. but semi-missed moments because everybody's tired. And then she's on her way to Brazil for two weeks. And back then, not that the technology wasn't there, but we didn't have a uh, camera for skype right. we didn't have so you know two in the morning i got to get on a train she's asleep and i don't want to wake her because i know she's got an early flight I w i'm walking out the door and she wakes up and she's like hey you didn't say goodbye and i'm like i'm sorry i wanted to let you sleep she's like i'm not going to talk to you for two weeks and i was like that's okay i'll see you on the other side i give her a kiss and i walk out the door and the moment i close the door i was like oh we're in trouble we're in trouble. We don't, I at that time was so independent, I didn't need her. And I didn't belong to her, to us in that way. I get on that plane, I'm tormented. I'm like, what does that mean? Is this over? Like, mm. what's happening? And I get off the plane, I get in the car with my dad, and I tell my dad, and my dad says, well, what are you, you going to do about it? I'm like, what do you mean? What am I going to do about it? It's Cindy's fault. She's the one who's on the road all the time. He's like, no, no. It's not about whose fault it is. It's about what are you going to do about it? Because he said, love is not a feeling. It's an action, which has always been my parents' creed, and it's obnoxious. But it's on but it's point. It's so, it's so like, you know, it's on point. It's not, you know, I remember when we went to get married, we uh, sought out a marriage counselor who explained to us, um, very clearly that marriage is not about uh, the sex. It's not about the feeling. It's not about the money. It's not about the kids. It's not about any of those things because all those things come and go. It's about how you are there for that other person. What are you doing? Again, this doing. And when my dad said that, he's like, what are you going to do? I was like, okay, I need to do, I need to love more. And so I asked A-Step for some time to work remotely and I went on tour with her. Went to California with her. Then we both went to India together and to South Africa to visit our programs. And we spent eight consecutive months where we figured out how to do this distance thing without becoming so independent that we stopped needing each other to remain interdependent. And now we have some pretty like steadfast rules about how often we see each other, no matter where we are on the road, how often we talk on the phone, how we talk on the phone when we're on mm -hmm. Skype with one another. Um, yeah, I think it's easy sometimes when, when it's like a long 
long time you're going to be apart, eventually you kind of like shut down a little bit yeah. like as a self-protection thing. Right. Because you are need to be independent. Right. How do you deal with that? I mean, you and Frankie spend, he's about to go. He's so much time apart. Yeah. I mean, we all, there always gets to a point, and now we just laugh about it, there mm. gets to a point where we have nothing else to say to each other on the mm. phone except for I love you and I miss you. And eventually we'll just like after three weeks or like the conversation has run out. Yeah, right. I can recount to you what I ate that day. Right, that's right. <laughs> and then it's like, I'm sorry, I, I love you and I miss you. That's all. I that's don't have anything else. It, right. And we just say that a couple of times. And right. <laughs> and then what's the moment, <laughs> what's the moment like when he comes home or when you come home? What's that, um, what's that first moment like? I mean, it's always, it's always wonderful. I guess there is always a little readjusting. Yeah, right. Kind of giving back of the space you've taken over in your right, life. Right, The time and the space. And yeah. Yeah, we call, we call that the, the, I call it the, the miss, the early miss, you know, where I get home and I know she's gotten home, but I just came from a day of something. As you're saying, you, you put so well, right? How do you readjust the space you've taken over? And wanting to connect, right? Because we know we might want an intimate moment or we have something serious to talk about. Yeah, but, but where do you start? Where do we start? <laughs> like and we miss time. each other and our, our bodies don't know each other anymore. And like, you know, what is it to touch you? And I'm hurt in a certain yeah. way. And how do I pay attention to that? It takes time. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how you guys have been able to support each other. Yeah, we're lucky. We, in fact, the other day, I, I said to her, because we're, Cindy and I have... I've come around to expressing more of our uh, affection in public. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty. I'm not a big PDA person, uh, but Cindy I am now just because Frankie has cause, taught me how. Because he's taught you how. similarly, <laughs> That's right? Just the way he Cindy's is, taught so. me how, and so I we, we do it all the time. And I sit there and I think of us. I look at us, you know, out from the outside, and I imagine. I wonder if you know folks passing by, if they would care, would be like, oh, look at that nice those newlyweds. You know what yeah. I mean? Look how lovey dovey they are. And it's like, dog, it's been 16 years. <laughs> like, <laughs> we worked it. We've been together for a long time, and it's. It's just, you know, it's now that we're like in that, yeah, 16 years together and 12 years married. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really great. Is there anything from the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about, like a lesson you've learned or mm. something like that? It could be a small thing. Yeah, awesome. Awesome question. A lesson I've learned. So many, oh my gosh. Um, I'm really proud of... I mean, this is obvious. I'm really proud of the people I've come to know. Um, Kate Bergstrom, my other, she's the other uh, person in my directing cohort. Oh, I met her at the um, Artists' Citizen Conference. Correct, correct. I don't remember if it was this year. Maybe last year. year. It was yeah, last yeah. year. She introduced her. Yeah, she and I are, we are different people. <laughs> um, we're beautifully different. We complement mm. each other in wonderful ways, and she's taught me so much, uh, humbled me um, in so many beautiful ways. Um, love her. Uh, Carlos Sierra. Uh, boy, I could just name uh, Ashley T. I can go on. The name is long. All of my classmates, my acting classmates. Um, but that's that's hard to do on the radio when nobody knows who these people are. <laughs> <laughs> The lesson, I guess, I took a course this semester with Ralph Lemon, okay. um, who, if you don't know, y'all should know, he's a brilliant performance artist, also rather prolific, 
a New York-based performance artist, and he talks a lot about uh, refining the questions that inspire our work. That artists are only as good as what they don't know, what they know that they don't know. We're only as good as the questions that we have yeah. and how they fuel us. And that certain questions are just inadequate. Uh, so, you know, today I might have a question, um, but in fact, that question is superficial and is only going to get me into next week. It's really about refining, refining the question until you find that question that's going to get you through the next 10 years. Um, and that these are impossible questions, that they are deep and risky questions, right? Yeah, failure is almost inevitable, but they're generative. Right. They're the kind of thing that you're just like, I get that I'm not going to get there, but I need to. There's something yeah, about it. it. Lead? How many different roads is it going to lead? Precisely, to precisely. Yeah. And I, I love that. I love being inspired by the question because it begets humility. Right, it again removes from the self-entitlement, from the self-righteousness of I have an answer. I, in fact, don't have the answer to these questions. Um, but I'm after them, and I'm trying to figure out how I, can, how I can do something about it. Right now, the question that's fueling me comes from Brian Stevenson, who is the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative down in Alabama. And he is, has posed this question really to the entire country, which is how do we reframe the cultural narrative to recognize uh, our history of mass violence and lynching because there is a deep trauma created by that history that continues to divide us and will continue to divide us until uh, we, we, we learn to recognize it. So very practically, his organization um, has created memorials, markers, historical markers, all throughout Alabama. Um, to recognize where lynchings took place, where slave markets were, uh, as well as opening up a museum and very soon a memorial for all of the 4,075 individuals that they have accounted for that were uh, lynched over the last 150 years. And so he's encouraged us all. He's called everybody to engage in this work. How do we reframe the cultural narrative to recognize our past? That in so many ways is... is what my parents uh, were up to when I was a kid growing up. Mm -hmm. And it's what uh, it's now just inspired, re-inspired again through this lens. So I'm working in Alabama. That's a major project that I think could be my next A-step. It could be the next nonprofit organization that I commit myself to for the next decade or two, um, which is uh, engaging in memorial efforts mm. and how those memorial efforts are remembering the people who were killed um, and what they're not remembering, what they're intentionally forgetting in the work to memorialize. Yeah. So down in Arkansas, it's uh, the mass lynching of over 250 black uh, laborers, tenant farmers, individuals in the summer of 1919. Talk about something I learned. I knew nothing of that. Yeah. Um, and... There is a memorial effort underway as we approach the centennial in 2019. So I've organized a group of artists uh, to spend the last two summers there and hopefully the next six years in and out uh, 
producing residencies for local uh, artists, for local black artists to create space for a reckoning with identity. What does it mean to be a Phillips County? What does it mean to remember that history? What does it say for who we are today and our struggles and who we want to be and the things that make us all the beautiful things that we are as well. So um, that's, that's one way. It's an impossible task, right? Reframing the cultural narrative. That's epic. That's huge for one individual to take on, but I'm after it in this one particular way and excited and also, gosh, probably the hardest work in many ways that I've ever done. Yeah, but that's exciting to hear that you have you have kind of your sights trained on something to work on right after yeah. you're done with, well, already, but right after you're done with this uh, school year. That's right. That's right. I mean, I know that they've done a lot of that sort of reckoning like around the Holocaust in Correct. Germany and in Europe. Correct. And it's always interesting to me since like World War II didn't happen, mm. except for Pearl Harbor, it didn't really happen in the United States, mm-hmm. it's all kind of everyone was sent away. It all mm-hmm. happened at a far mm-hmm. from afar. That's Brian there's, Stevenson's argument. There's Sorry, so much in our own history that people just decided, well, it's done. Yeah, it's past. This is that part that Brian Stevenson speaks to. He's like, "What? Look at what Germany's done, right? You can't yeah. go a hundred meters without seeing." A memorial. And I know it's not perfect, and I know Correct. there are certain factions trying to rise again and all this stuff, but um, they've really tried to stare at it in its face. Right. And I wonder, I wonder, you know, instead of, and this is where the question works, the question model, instead of making assertions as to why I think that is, I think that is because so and so forth. And I think there are some really strong assertions about why that is, that, you know, we um, perpetuate a, we are the, you know, the, the kind of the leaders of a white supremacist culture. And a part of that is negating and ignoring a history of violence and abuse that could justify resistance to white supremacist culture. Um, so there's that. And yet at the same time, I ask, you know, my work in Arkansas is to ask that question without presuming right is to walk in and ask hey telling people the answer yeah that's right like what 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 is it about that like do you do you know that this thing happened why why do you not know what do you think um and come into it open and genuine and allow that we're all complicated and yeah they're gonna have different ways to to answer for that um we have been talking for quite a while i would love to keep talking even more i'm as you can hear, the kids are home upstairs yeah. <laughs> encroaching on us. Yeah, yeah. I usually ask two questions at the end, but before that, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you really wanted to talk about? Yeah, the, another project mm-hmm. that I'm engaged with um, at the moment is organizing a convening of uh, conservatory students, faculty, and administrators to unravel the last hundred years of conservatory training. Um, so far, a super preliminary research, but I've been able to trace conservatories to the Catholic University in D.C. back in the early teens. And You're talking about acting conservatories? Correct, acting theater conservatories. Know, like music conservatories have been around Correct, forever. yeah, great, great clarification. Acting conservatories. Mm-hmm. And so what have we learned in the last hundred years? And what, in this moment where uh, across the country there is a real question about equity, diversity, and inclusion, Mm -hmm. uh, 
and in particular within our form, um, how do we unravel our training and think about how our training is exclusive, um, not diverse, and uh, not equitable? Uh, and at the same time, recognize where it is. Like, how do we unravel what we've been doing? Because clearly at this moment, statistically, the majority of our positions of leadership are white men. Mm -hmm. um, plays center around male narratives. Um, there, you know, the amount of opportunities for POC are slim to none, and it's not getting any better. Right, and that, what will it accomplish to address it from the training side of it as opposed to the industry side of it? Totally, and I, and I would say my perspective on that just preliminarily and what my pitch is, is, um, and, and this is why I'm interested in conservatory, right, that who makes up, uh, our, who, 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 where do our producers and our casting directors and our film stars come from? Where were they trained? I mean, you and I got that speech, right, about Juilliard um, having, you know, 80% of its student base getting work consistently. Uh, and that, you know, we have a golden year where all the casting directors are interested in us specifically. Same goes for Yale and NYU and other schools that are coming up like Brown at this moment. So, so there is something to be said about the platform that our particular institutions have. And I think the way we're being trained um, that perpetuates a culture in the industry, that misogyny and sexism was rampant at Juilliard, that I dealt with sexual harassment in a way I'm sure that you potentially did, and no one questioned it. It was just kind of what you, that's, that's a part of what it's like to be in this industry. Yeah. Uh, and so to me, it's about, it's not just about training in general, it's about places with specific platforms, with certain uh, power that, that uh, have an influence in the industry and how do we reckon with those places? And that's, that's another way for me to think systemically, right? Yeah. If we're dealing with these issues on our screens, where does it begin? Well, and, and what does it prepare you and what confidence does it give you to accept or not accept from people when you go out in the business? Mm. Yeah, totally. Because I feel like I I, for me, the power differential was mm. so off when I graduated right. and I just that's wanted... Right someone to choose me and all this stuff and it that's was right. just whether consciously or not I got fed about it was especially as a woman like it's the way totally. you look and <laughs> having to look sexy and it's all these old white men giving you approval or not that's it's right just, it was disturbing that's right and then we become role models for other young folk who want to yeah. do the same thing and we've bought into it and go yeah sure that's like, the oh, way it is the way it's done. like it we sucks it but we have to do it this way right right so that's, that's something no, a group of us are trying to that. organize. We're trying to convene folks just to ask these questions. Yeah. What is it to unravel our training, to decolonize our training, if you will? Do you have a goal for when you want that to happen? Or not oh, yet? boy, totally. And we're going to miss that goal. We're going to fail at it. <laughs> uh, we were aiming for June. Brown has agreed to host it. Okay. Um, we're still, uh, there are a couple of us, Julia Izumi, um, who's a playwright at Brown at the moment, um, a couple of others at Yale uh, who are engaged in trying to organize this event. Uh, probably more like October, okay. September, October. Yeah, but we're excited. And we've already received a lot of interest, folks who are like, yeah, I want to be at that table too. Uh, Nicole Brewer down at Howard University is, has, is publishing very soon. American Theater is publishing an article where she's reckoning with, um, uh, you know, how 
conservatory training or theater training is centered around um, European, white European narratives and how to decentralize that. So she's cooking in this conversation. A lot of folks are. And so um, I'm thankful that I'm in conversation with them and hopefully they'll be at the table too. Yeah, let me keep me updated. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, when you are having a day where you're really feeling uninspired or really yeah. down, like what are the concrete things that you reach for again and oh, again? Like, man. do you have a book that you reread over and over? Awesome. What are those things? Yeah, I reach for my sister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is this your, she's younger. She's younger. Yeah, she's seven years younger, but she's a joy and so wise. Oh. Um, and she likes uh, The Office and 30 Rock. <laughs> and so, you know, we currently live together. That's uh, right. And she's a vet technician, you know, so her life is very different from mine. And I will have had a crummy day at rehearsal. And I'll be at home and I'll be like, Hima, what are you doing? And she'll be like, come eat cheese with me and watch <laughs> 30 Rock. <laughs> and right, and I'm like vegan, right? But <laughs> I'm like, all right, let's have some cheese and watch 30 Rock. And we just laugh together. <laughs> I guess that's a big thing is laughter, right? Yeah. Finding, and it's not just like laughter by myself. It's finding somebody to laugh with, which is a great way to relativize. Totally. Um, I meditate. I have a little altar in my apartment um, with different tokens that I've received over the years from people I love. Uh, and oftentimes a prayer or a quote that centers me and I light some candles um, and I, you know, they're scented candles, so it smells nice. <laughs> and I sit by myself and I just, I meditate. I'm quiet for a little bit. I ride my bike. Love riding bicycle. Uh, that gives me a certain amount of peace. And recently swimming. So physical stuff, right? As well as like knowing who my people are, knowing how to laugh, uh, making sure I eat well. Not, not right? Because in those uninspired moments are when I'm like, oh gosh, give me the chocolate <laughs> um, when instead like it's about no how do i take care of my body right right i i have I was, to i was gonna say for me it's like it's realizing that oh i probably just need to eat lunch <laughs> right. and then i'm gonna stop being so pissed <laughs> off at everything in the world right just be just be healthy if i just take care of myself a little bit just eat a little bit <laughs> right turn this style down yeah totally um yeah those are all good things books so many so many books um I turn to, I'm currently reading a book of prayers called In the Land of Living. Dr. King's writing constantly reinvigorates me and gets me out of my head. And it's like, come on, <laughs> like, yeah. that's really not that deep. <laughs> what Dr. King is writing about, that's deep. <laughs> that's where it's about. Um, yeah, that's where, that's where I go. And then the final question is, have you seen anything recently that you want to recommend of any art form? Yes, anything that Crystal Pite is making <laughs> uh, and that my beloved Cindy is in, or not in, because Crystal's phenomenal, uh, you should go see. You should follow Kid Pivot as a dance company. They're going to be in the States in the uh, winter, spring. They'll be out in Santa Monica and in Seattle and in different parts of the country. Are and they coming to New York? Do you know? No, because oh, okay. the critics of New York don't like Crystal's work, which Ew. is ridiculous. <laughs> and for many other reasons, right? But that's one of them. Okay. Anyway, Crystal's work for sure. Um, other work that's inspiring me right now. If you get a chance to see Dash which is a piece, a uh, solo piece for a dancer done by Akram Khan. Uh, beautiful storytelling, dance theater, 
projection involved in it. Uh, that's fueled me for a good year. Uh, and I would say go to the Edinburgh Festival, Fringe Festival. I spent <laughs> a summer there and I saw so many things that were inspiring. Um, I know it's a long trip and costs a lot of money. And Yeah, I want to do it one day, though. Oh, there are many reasons, right, that it makes it tough. But go, like, just be involved in in that kind of work. Um, podcasts. Podcasts are my jam. What do you listen to? Oh, man. I've recently picked up your podcast. So thankful for that. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Um, I listen to Radiolab. Mm-hmm. Um because that's not in my field, and it's great <laughs> to like be pushed into other ways of thinking. I listen to On Being uh-huh. with Chris the Tippett. It's pretty awesome. Um, and I listen to the usual like This American Life, just like good old stories yeah. keep me happy. Um, they, it, the perspective, it's all about perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Marisa, thank you. Oh, man. This was really special. Thank you. What a joy, Leah. Thank you. Yeah, what a great way to get some perspective. And now, over dinner, you'll tell me more about yes your answers (laughs) to these questions. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of The Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thecompasspodcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brendan Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.